This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to another edition of Future Tense. It's coming up to the end of the financial year. Companies are busy taking stock of their operations and looking ahead for ways to streamline and cut costs. Automation is always a popular option, of course. And Will Dunn, the business editor for the New Statesman in the UK, has a rather novel suggestion for whose job should go first. There are lots of very good CEOs, lots of executives who add a lot of value to their company. But when you look at the formal science of decision making and the place it has within a company, it does seem to me to be an area of work that is ripe for automation. But that is not something that's often talked about because obviously the people making the spending decisions will be automating themselves out of a job if they chose to do so. Automating from the top. The future of business could certainly get a lot more interesting. That's Will Dunn in London and he'll join us a little later in the show. And we'll also talk about personalisation and consent in the online world with Vanessa Teague from the Australian National University. But first... At last, Russia seemed to be keen on the question of a nuclear test ban. Lord Hailsham and Mr Avril Harriman were at the Kremlin to speak for the West. It took many years and many meetings to create the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. It was signed in 1968. And while no one would claim it's been perfect, it has played a significant role in preventing the destruction of the world. So could such a treaty help us prevent the destruction of the environment? Well, that's the hope of a new global campaign called the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. Its deputy director is Rebecca Burns. The World Economic Forum last year It releases its global risks report on a yearly basis. And for the first time, it found that failure to act on climate change was actually the greatest threat facing humanity, greater than weapons of mass destruction. And so a big part of our campaign for a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty is about making that analogy and getting people to recognise that fossil fuels are as dangerous as weapons of mass destruction in terms of the existential threat that they face. But the other reason is that the three pillars that underpin the nuclear regime actually also work really well when you're applying it to fossil fuels, because the nuclear regime is about non-proliferation, for one thing, which is about not expanding or acquiring further nuclear weapons. It's about disarming, which is phasing down existing stockpiles of nuclear weapons, and it's about peaceful transition away from nuclear energy. And all of those things apply to fossil fuels, where we need to stop expansion of production, we need to phase down existing production, and we need to transition to renewable energy in a way that's fair and equitable. So there are some really great analogies, and also that framework applies really well, which is why we've used that analogy in our campaign. And you believe this puts an emphasis on the supply side of fossil fuels. Could I get you to explain that to us? So a lot of policy both at the national level and the international level so far, focuses primarily on the demand. So what are consumers doing? Where are we actually emitting greenhouse gas emissions from in our day-to-day lives, which is obviously very important. But we're only looking at one side of the equation. And while we're trying to focus on changing behaviour and changing how we generate electricity on the one hand, on the other hand, corporations and governments around the world are still digging huge amounts of fossil fuels out of the ground, far more than we can afford to burn under the temperature goals that are set by the Paris Agreement. 
And so those two things aren't adding up at the moment. Our efforts to tackle the demand side are being undermined by the fact that we're still producing far more fossil fuels than we should be. And so the idea of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty is that it helps to cut the source of greenhouse gas emissions off at the source, essentially, by going to where they're being dug out of the ground and limiting that so that we're not continuing to produce these dangerous fuels that once they're dug out of the ground, essentially, they are going to be burnt and that will far overshoot all of the efforts being undertaken elsewhere to limit greenhouse gas emissions. So is this more than just a moratorium on fossil fuel extraction? I mean, are you also attempting to reduce existing infrastructure and levels of investment, of investment, that kind of thing? It's both of those things, really. So just last month, the International Energy Agency released for the first time its 1.5 degree scenario, 1.5 degrees being the temperature goal that is globally agreed is really the upper limit of how much we should allow the planet to warm above pre-industrial levels. And under that scenario, they have found that we really can't afford to invest in any new fossil fuel infrastructure. So we can't dig any new oil or gas wells or any new coal mines if you want to stay within that limit. But that scenario also has a lot of assumptions around technologies that don't exist yet. And we've released some recent analysis, which actually shows that if you don't rely on some of those technologies, such as carbon capture and storage and so on, and you stop investment, there's actually still far more fossil fuels that are already being dug out of the ground than we can afford to emit or burn. So it's not just about ending investment in new extraction. It's also about how do we start to wind down those projects that already exist? And that's a really challenging conversation, but it's a conversation that we need to have. And part of the reason that we're calling for a treaty is because that conversation needs to happen in a way that's fair and equitable and allows those countries that are going to really struggle with that transition because they depend on fossil fuel extraction to take it a bit slower and have support from those countries that are wealthier and able to transition more quickly. And so it's really about both of those pieces. And we can't afford simply to stop new projects. We also need to think about those that are already in operation. The specifics and the actual mechanisms, ultimately, that'll be up to countries to negotiate because we are calling for a multilateral process. But essentially, that's the the principles that we think should underpin the treaty are that there are countries that will, won't be able to move as quickly. And there are countries, and Australia is one of those countries, that actually should be able to phase out fossil fuels much faster. Because even though we might have a large mining sector, our economy isn't as dependent on fossil fuel extraction as some poorer countries, for example, East Timor or Azerbaijan or Angola and other, other countries which actually depend on extraction for employment and revenue to such an extent that they'll struggle more. Your proposal would require that governments and corporations honestly report on existing fossil fuel reserves. Is that realistic? Without being cynical, is that realistic? So at the moment, surprisingly, there's actually very little information in the public sphere about what coal, oil or gas is under the ground or what's being produced. And so one of the key stepping stones that we argue towards a a more substantive treaty is that we simply ask countries to report the information about what's in the ground in their territories and what they're producing to start to be able to track how much is coming out of the ground every year and how much that's potentially putting us off track to achieving the Paris Agreement. And it's not completely unrealistic to ask countries to report that information. Many are starting to do so, and it's a really simple step. And I guess one of the really interesting things is that in many cases, governments themselves don't yet have all that information. So the idea of what we're calling this global registry of fossil fuels would also be to encourage countries and governments to secure that information from the corporations that are operating in their countries so that they are also themselves informed. 
So the idea is this really is a public policy tool that is allowing governments to ensure they also have information to make the right decisions and for the public to then hold governments to account because they can see how much is being produced every year. And am I correct in assuming that you see this as a complementary strategy, that you're, you, know, you, you don't want this to undermine other efforts like the, the Paris Agreement, for instance? So the Paris Agreement is the most recent and you know, at this stage the most important international climate treaty that exists. But the Paris Agreement is really important in terms of setting the vision and the goal for where we want to go as a world. And in particular, it sets a global temperature goal of limiting our greenhouse gas emissions such that we don't let the climate warm more than two degrees above what it was at pre-industrial times, and ideally limiting it to 1.5 degrees of warming. And that target is incredibly important. The Paris Agreement is also really important because it requires countries to submit their own climate goals on a five-yearly basis. And that's already seen, although the progress has been slow, we have seen countries start to make more and more ambitious climate goals. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't say how countries need to meet those goals or how that 1.5 degree temperature target needs to be met. So the idea of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Initiative, it's really about the how. It's about what needs to be done in a really concrete and tangible way to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. A final question, where to from here with this initiative? I mean, you've, you've got support from various scientists, celebrities and even businesses. Where do you take it from here? What are the next steps? So uh, just a few weeks ago, we had over 100 Nobel Prize winners who collectively signed a letter calling for the end to fossil fuel production and the global just transition away from fossil fuels that was sent to all of the heads of state that attended President Biden's climate summit. So things like that are really exciting and are evidence of the growing momentum behind the campaign. For us, it's really about continuing to build that base. And I think what's really exciting now is to see that there are actually some changes happening in the international sphere. For example, the IEA, the International Energy Agency, recognising that we can't invest in new fossil fuel projects that are really making it possible for us to have more serious conversations with country governments. So we're working to grow the campaign, to have more and more people express their support for it, to mobilise grassroots movements around the world. As much as it's a big ambitious idea, we are seeing some countries start to really change their tune when it comes to fossil fuel production. And so we're really confident that it is possible. And so that's our goal and that's what we're working towards at the moment. Rebecca Burns, Deputy Director of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Initiative, thank you very much for joining us on Future Tense. Thanks very much for having me. The ABC will soon require people to register before they can use the online video catch-up service iView. Compulsory registration was meant to start this month, but it's now been pushed back. That probably doesn't sound like much of an issue, given that so many online services now require you to register your details. But for Associate Professor Vanessa Teague from the Australian National University, it's yet another example of the way in which online consent is taken for granted, all in the name of a more tailored user experience. Personalisation, she says, is problematic and often just a cover for data harvesting. Vanessa Teague. It's very hard to do anything on the internet without engaging 
either deliberately or accidentally with one of the companies that sells your attention. As you know, until very recently, the ABC used to be one of the places that you could go on the internet without automatically being tracked by Google, Facebook, or one of the other data on sellers. Controversially, and recently the ABC has decided to strike a deal with Facebook, Google, and Telium, in which ABC iView users' viewing habits and other personal data will be made available to Facebook and Google for supposedly personalization, but actually obviously for targeted advertising. Now, you wrote to the board of the ABC detailing your objections. Just tell us what those objections were. First of all, the ABC is not just another part of the surveillance capitalism infrastructure, right? So this is not just another ordinary example of getting something that seems to be free when you're really paying for it with your personal data. We don't have to pay for ABC content by selling off our personal data. We already paid for ABC content. And I think that the argument that everybody on the internet is doing this and therefore it's okay, does not hold because the ABC is partly special because it's taxpayer funded, but it's also partly special because it holds a special role in Australian democracy. And that role is to let everybody share in a agreed upon history about what we're doing as a country. So, for example, we don't really want people to get a special, different, personalised experience of the election results like they do in the United States. We want everybody to get a shared and common understanding of what the election outcome is, because then we don't have crazy guys with guns showing up (laughs) thinking that they're saving democracy by engaging in violence against the elected representatives. I think the idea of personalisation has never actually been in the interests of ordinary consumers. It's always been primarily for the benefit of advertisers, and there's absolutely no reason that this is something that should be pushed at the ABC. Now, I said you wrote to the board about this. Did you get a response from them? I got a uh, kind of two-liner that said, Dear ABC viewer, thank you for your concerns. Matters you have raised are taken very seriously and we'll get back to you in the fullness of time. Does the fact that a public broadcaster would take this oppression, as you say, you know, there are questions about whether it actually fits with what the role of the ABC is, its public duty, to the whole of the community of Australia. Does the fact that a public broadcaster would take this on, does it show how seductive this notion of personalisation has become, despite the privacy concerns that you and others have raised for quite a long time? It depends what you mean by seductive, right? It's not seductive for individual consumers or viewers or users. And I think if it was, then there'd be an opt-in, right? Because if people thought they wanted it, if, if the ABC management thought that people wanted it, they would have given us the opportunity to opt into it. Instead, it's been forced upon iView viewers without uh, without asking for consent and, in fact, really without the option to opt out. So what the thing that is seductive is handing over other people's data, right, which is a great deal easier than handing over your own and has basically no consequences for those people who have been entrusted with the care of that information. And the idea of consent, that's important here, isn't it, because that's the flip side of this personalisation argument that's often forgotten about. Yes. And like many things, I think... There's an effort to make it sound complicated when it's really just not. And we've seen some extensive discussion of the notion of consent in the context of sexual consent, 
But of course, consent is a common issue that affects a whole lot of different domains. And it's actually not really confusing whether you've got somebody's consent if you shoved something at them and they didn't say no loud enough to make you stop. That's not actually consent. It's not consent in the sexual domain and it's not consent in the privacy domain either. And the other thing that really undermines the notion of consent is that many of these platforms make it exceedingly difficult even to understand what you're consenting to. So if you don't really understand what you're consenting to and you didn't really get a choice about whether to use it, for example, you needed to use it to make a booking at your doctor or you needed to use it to communicate with friends or something, then you can't really be said to have consented if you didn't actually have the option to not consent. So for example, Apple's new policy in which they will require active consent for some kinds of user tracking is a really good step in the right direction, right? And Facebook is crying foul, of course, as you would expect, because if people actively have to opt in to Facebook tracking them when they're using some other app, then most people are not going to opt in and that's going to severely curtail the extent of tracking that Facebook already does. Now, I'm pleased you mentioned Apple there because they seem to be diverging from other media players on this issue of privacy and consent. But how genuine is it? How how significant are the changes that they're bringing in? I think it's more genuine than, uh, for example, the Chrome browser's new privacy protections. In the case of Apple, their business model has never really been oriented around violating personal privacy and on-selling attention in the way that Facebook and Google's business model is fundamentally oriented around that. Your attention is not the product that Apple sells. On the other hand, there have been plenty of criticisms of Apple about whether their claims to do a brilliant job of protecting privacy necessarily hold up as strongly as you would want them to, and uh, in particular their cooperation with the Chinese government and their agreement to store data from Chinese people's Apple products in a data centre in China under the control of a Chinese company has uh, attracted significant amount of criticism, in my opinion, entirely justified, because in that case, it's obviously extremely unclear. Apple can meet any promises that it might make to its Chinese customers to keep their data private from the Chinese government. As you say, Apple is different. Its history is different to, around privacy, is different to other major media players. But do you think their moves in this direction will inspire or or force the hands of, of others? Rumour has it that Facebook is thinking about suing them over antitrust. I don't know whether that will happen. And if it does happen, I don't think anybody in the planet will be able to predict the consequences. It's certainly going to severely curtail Facebook's core business, right? Because if Facebook can't track Apple users across their use of different Apple apps or different visits to different places on the Safari browser, then it's going to be a great deal harder for Facebook to sell people's attention. Going back to the issue of personalisation, providers of various services say that privacy and user anonymity are safeguarded, that there is actually protection in the systems that they provide. You're sceptical of that though, aren't you? I am. Obviously, it depends on the specific system. But if, for example, we go back to the ABC example, we see in the privacy policy of the ABC, we see mention of sharing a hash 
of your email address with Google and Facebook. And the only opt-out you've got, by the way, you're not able to opt out of data sharing in general, but you're able to opt out of the sharing of the hash of your email address. Now, if you just think about as a technical level, what, what that means and what option it actually gives you. First of all, hashing the email address before they on-sell it to Google and Facebook, it doesn't make the slightest bit of difference, right? Google and Facebook already have your email address. All they have to do is hash it on the other side and see whether it matches. So this sort of fig leaf that's being put over the email address by hashing it before it gets on-sold is absolutely meaningless from a technical perspective. It, its only value is to slightly confuse naive privacy policy readers into thinking that their email address is being protected when it clearly isn't. And then the second thing is, again, if you read the fine print of the new privacy policy and you look for an opt-out, there's actually no opt-out of the data sharing. There's an opt-out of the sharing of the hashed email address. But that doesn't necessarily let you opt out of any of the other data that might be being shared. And in particular, since the Google and Facebook tracking scripts are now present in the iView web session, they can very easily use all kinds of techniques like fingerprinting your web browser or looking for cookies that can, or checking your IP address that can identify you even if they don't get your email address. So this is just one example, and it is pretty typical across the internet, that a non-expert reader of the privacy policy might think, first of all, that the data is being somewhat reasonably protected in the first place, and second, that they have an opt-out opportunity, whereas in fact, your data is not being reasonably protected and you don't have any practical opportunity that makes any difference. It's very hard to think of what you can do to defend yourself. And the answer is it's very hard in the absence of good privacy regulation. But I'd encourage everybody to have a look at coveryourtracks.eff.org, which contains some really good practical advice and some automated tests of how identifiable your web browser is. Associate Professor Vanessa Teague from the Australian National University. And you're listening to Future Tense, an ABC Radio National production. I'm Anthony Fennell. And now, let's circle back to Will Hunt in London. He's the business editor for New Statesman, and as we heard earlier... He has a rather cheeky suggestion for how companies can save labour costs as they realign themselves for the future. So I've thought for a long time that in some cases we are automating the wrong part of the economy because the work of a CEO, primarily the most important part of it is, is decision making. And the types of decisions that are made by a CEO are decisions that are communicated widely across the company. They will be debated with, with the board. They will have to be signed off by other people. A good CEO will will listen to lots of feedback before making a strategic decision. And that's really the kind of process that it seems to me you can automate very well. And in doing so, remove the unconscious biases, the failures of judgment that can lead to poor strategic decision making by a human and make it a purely rational, automated process. So I think when the article was published, it, it did generate a lot of interest and a lot of conversation. And I think some people saw it as me having a pop at CEOs. I'm not really. There are lots of very good CEOs, lots of executives who add a lot of value to their company. But when you look at the formal science of decision making and the place it has within a company, it does seem to me to be an area of work 
that is ripe for automation. But that is not something that's often talked about because obviously the people making the spending decisions will be automating themselves out of a job if they chose to do so. But there have actually been examples, haven't there, where strategic decision-making within an organisation has been automated, it's been handed over to software. That's right. I used the Hong Kong Metro as my example because that started to be automated in terms of organisation and management in 2004, I think, was when the first it was first implemented. And that was when the maintenance of the Hong Kong Metro was portioned out by an AI. So a machine learning system just told the engineers what work to do and where overnight, which is very much a, a management role. But the juggling of lots of different priorities, the sorting of different amounts of time that it should take to do a job on a very wide scale and refreshing those decisions on a daily basis or a nightly basis in the case of, of uh, railway maintenance is something that's really suited to automatic decision making and that's worked very well and they have rolled that out to scheduling uh, and other parts of the network and the Hong Kong Metro is, is extremely well run and one of the most punctual and also one of the busiest metro systems in the world. And some tech organisations as you've pointed out have also automated some of their decision making. They have. There is increasingly a movement towards automating some yeah, business decision making. The company UiPath recently went public and is, is doing extremely well. I mean, you, you even have CEOs like Jack Ma of um, Alibaba saying that robot CEOs will be prevalent in about 30 years time. That seems like for a technology CEO, quite a, a long distance prediction. Tech CEOs uh, typically um, make predictions about what we're going to be doing in five years. But obviously, um, he's thinking about when he'll have retired and have been able to safely hand things over to the robots. When he's out of the game. We've exactly. Heard, we've heard on this program just recently about collective unintelligence, if you want to call it that, within organisations where bad decisions are followed by staff because staff are afraid to speak out about you know a strategy that they think might be problematic simply because of the you know the nature of the personality of the CEO or, or senior management would this idea of automating would it do away with some of that fear could it actually lead to more openness within organizations quite possibly i can imagine a situation in which people are able to anonymously question the judgment of the ceo if the ceo is automated and to have a lot more input across the whole company into the strategy, which is something that's at the moment in a lot of companies is kept in the sort of rarefied confines of the boardroom and strategic decisions are communicated to staff in a way that seems quite aloof. And that can often lead to disquiet among employees, something that you hear people who know a lot about management say about, especially about managing younger people, managing millennial and Gen Z employees is that you've really got to take them with you on decisions. You have to, you know, convince people that what they're doing is right for them and right for the company. And you can't do that if you just communicate big strategic decisions without consulting people, without giving them a chance to disagree and without listening to them. Yeah, I think there's an argument that a company in which strategic decision making is done automatically would be perhaps more democratic and that could lead to potentially better staff retention, 
and better engagement with staff in those important decisions. And coming right back to the issue of wages, the cost of labour is often cited as a major reason why companies undertake automation of their workforce or the tasks that the workforce undertake. If you're just looking at value per head, you could save an awful lot of money by sacking just a few people if you start to look at senior executives or the CEO, couldn't you? Absolutely. Yeah. In the article, I reference a CEO in the UK. I'll save him his blushes for this, but he is paid 2,605 times the median wage of his employees. So bearing in mind that the median wage will probably be skewed upwards a bit by other executives, you know, there are thousands of workers that he would have to lay off in order to automate his own value to the company, if you see what I mean, his own cost. So if you can employ software to save one executive who's paid over £50 million a year, then that's a lot of software cost. And, you know, software gets cheaper every year, whereas chief executives tend to get more expensive. Certainly puts a a whole new complexion on the issue of automation. Will Dunn, business editor with The New Statesman, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And that's the programme for another week. Thanks to my colleague and co-producer, Karen Savanovitz. Remember, go to our website if you want further details about any of the guests on today's show. You've been listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.